This episode of the Asians Represent podcast is brought to you by our amazing Patreon supporters and subscribers on Twitch. Uh, thanks to their support, we're able to take all of this extra audio from the past season of the Asians Represent podcasts, so that's episodes 35 to 45, and return them to our public podcast feed. Moving forward in 2022, thanks to their support, we'll be able to do monthly drops of Asians Represent episodes onto this feed. We're super excited. Now, if you are a patron of the podcast, don't worry. Our extended feed will continue, and our behind-the-scenes look at Dungeons & Asians, no dice, no problem, will still be a Patreon exclusive. That said, we are so excited for everyone to be able to access this episode in audio format. Uh, it's been quite a journey and quite a transformation of Asians Represent. We are constantly evolving, and we are so glad that our community is growing and here for this journey with us. That said, let's get to the episode. Agatha, you and I released a Dungeons and Asians um, thing on uh, our Patreon, talking our first meeting, in fact. Behind um, the scenes. I, behind the scenes. What, what, what's the show called again? Um, it, uh, no. we, no. no dice required, no dice, no problem. No dice, no problem. <laughs> no dice, no problem was, that was the, uh, is the new series that we put only on Patreon where it's, uh, you know, Daniel, Agatha, and then Dungeons and Asians folks, um, you know, talking about the game, talking about what we want. Um, I'm super excited. Um, I've got a thing that I'm working on and I'm 5,000 words deep into a custom class Ooh. for 5e Dungeons & Dragons Ooh. for Dungeons & Asians. So we're going to talk. It's going to be exciting. Um, I'm hyped. Um, but it's been a while since we've like been together in this virtual space. It's been a while since we've been you know, producing content for our audience. Uh, it was nice to have a break, but I really missed it. Uh, now, before we dive into the, the topic of the day, which is one that's honestly, let's let's be real, like two years in the making, two years in the making. Um, we've got a couple of uh, little announcements. Um, I'll start with the Asians represent ones uh, since they're pretty important. Um, we have uh, decided to kind of make Asians represent more of like a seasonal show. Uh, we we decided to go basically ten episodes on and then take a month off, and then another 10 episodes, and kind of repeat that. This way, we can um, be more purposeful with the episodes that we produce, uh, produce higher um, quality content, and of course, give everyone a break. Um, the holiday season is upon us. Uh, whatever you celebrate, it is a season for you know spending time with family, but also recharging. Um, so we, after this one, which is episode 44 of the Asians Represent podcast, we have episode 45 that Agatha will be hosting. Um, that will be the last one now until 2022. Now, the big announcement is that we're actually going to take all of the audio, um, from the podcast of the past 10 episodes, and we're going to put all of that back onto our original audio feed. Um, we got some messages from folks who were like, Daniel, did you forget to post audio? Have you been forgetting since May? Um, what happened there? And my response was, no, we're kind of focusing on this Twitch and YouTube thing, and our extended audio will go on Patreon. 
Um, but then it kind of struck me that, you know, accessibility is really important. And our patrons gave a lot of really great feedback about that. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take this entire season of 10 episodes, episodes 35 to 45. And by the beginning or, or middle of December, they will all be on our audio feed for folks to listen to. Um, they will not be the extended versions, so they'll just be whatever you see on YouTube. But the audio quality is going to be significantly better than that of YouTube uh, because we edit it and everything. Um, then moving forward in the new year, every episode will, of course, have its extended audio on Patreon. And then the video and audio um, that matches it released the following Monday. Uh, so very excited about this new direction. Um, we're going to be putting out Dungeons and Asians and... Uh, I'm hyped. I'm hoping that we can use Dungeons and Asians, um, where December could be the month of prep for Dungeons and Asians. Um, I hope that by the my goal is that by the end of 2021, we will be able to green light that series when we hit 100 patrons. Um, so, if you aren't a patron, or you know, if you know somebody who who may want to be the patron and has the means to do so, spread the word. Um, I'm really excited. We've got some really cool things planned. Agatha and I have some dope ideas. Um, it's going to be awesome. Yeah. And if you're a um, patron, you can listen to our ideas already. No dice, no problem. <laughs> <laughs> I'm excited. It's going to be good. Um, but yeah, that's the big uh, Asians represent thing. Um, for the rest of us, like Steve, Agatha, any news, anything going on? I know, Agatha, you're coming off of like a really intense sort of like film festival sort of season um yeah so i hope you're doing well i hope you're recovering thanks i finally <laughs> recovered from my cold that is not covid <laughs> bless so, bless 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 very happy nice and uh steve you got anything going on i have just finished uh episode two out of potentially eight episode run of an actual play uh oh. with some really talented folks uh it's just a DD actual play i felt like it was time for me just to get back into like playing dungeons and dragons it's just like doing my thing just being on camera and things like that where i am playing a baybound diaspora <laughs> uh chinese gangster um whose name is han and he focuses on like his wing chung but also just like being an enforcer and whatnot i'm having a ton of fun with it and i get to put on a ton of makeup on screen it's really, really cool. Uh, you can check out my Twitter where I post some pictures of it and I uh, plug that that stream. It's a pretty short one, but uh, I'm really excited for Matt and I'm having a blast, which is great. That is hype. Nice. That's that's yeah. awesome. Um, no, that's really that's really cool. Actually, it's really funny. Emma and I in our uh, our home D&D game, uh, one of our friends, we were we were going to do like a Halloween special and I handed the GM reins to one of the players for like a two shot. and. Ooh. We all forgot to dress up except for our one friend who had full fur bulk makeup and Whoa. everything. And I was she like, looked oh, great. <laughs> she looked great. I was like, oh shit. And I just ran and I grabbed stuff and put it on. But like halfway into the game, she's like, oh my God, this makeup. And I had to like take it off. So I'm like, mad respect to folks who can um, perform and play DD in makeup because yeah. it's intense. Uh, I definitely. After the first episode, I definitely got a sty, <laughs> and I was like, "This sucks." Oh, but like, oh no, cosplayer stuff like you get used to it, but you know it's wow. ever fun. Yeah, I'm excited for us to to do a cosplay episode, Steve. <gasps> down, down, uh, yeah, 
I mean, it's going to happen. We're getting some great people together for it. Oh, yeah, totally. Um, last thing. For us to cosplay in an episode. Oh, oh, yeah. No doubt. It's going to happen. I mean, we'll talk. We'll talk. I mean, we've oh, talked oh. about it, but we like, talked literally about it. there's a cupboard box hidden behind all these cosplays here that is labeled La Ning. Uh, <laughs> so that's that's back here somewhere. Now, yeah, with our main Dungeons and Dragons. Sorry. We'll we'll work on it. <laughs> we'll work on it. Paper. We'll make a paper. Well, we could do a whole episode of us paper paper macheing a shrimp helmet for you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Right, and then you don't have to have the rest of the costume. It's just you could do regular clothes <laughs> just and just a shrimp helmet. Like, yeah, well, it's not gonna fit on screen or anything. Well, that's yeah. that's the that's the and we can have the the, the the eyes maybe dangle from like the top of this top of the yeah. screen. We'll we'll I mean, figure just, it out. You just gotta modify a horse head. Yeah. Oh my god. I don't. Why did I say yeah? From the museum. <laughs> yeah, I, I have that. I do have that curl. There was that curl costume. I wonder if I could borrow it. Curl costume and armor. Yeah. Done. We'll, we'll figure it out. I don't know anything about cosplayer costumes. I will defer to the experts. Stay AKA tuned for Asians represent Asian. in 2022 <laughs> for that. Uh, last thing, I got my copy of Unbreakable Revolution. Um, super excited about that. Um, super cool. I'm happy it came in the mail. Uh, really excited to see all of the different art here, which I think is is really awesome. Um it's just cool to see all of these different stories. I think, um, you know, they definitely did not like play it safe. They were like, yeah, tell these stories, make it like a conversation. And so I'm really excited to just see it in person. It There's just, there's something special about seeing, a, like having a physical copy of a book. Um, I especially love that Revolutions is a system agnostic. Um, I was talking to a friend about this. I love the old French cooking manuscripts where like they didn't tell you like what temperature to set your oven. They didn't tell you how long to sear certain foods and things like that. They assumed that you were already pretty good at cooking. It was just conceptually dense. It was like, mm. here are things that you might not have considered that we really enjoy that are new and fun and just like enjoy. I thought that was wow. like a, a really cool direction for an RPG book. Yeah, it's, you know what, it's nice just seeing, you know, different stories being told across all of these different systems, right? You look at the back of Unbreakable Revolutions, and it says all of the different systems that each individual story is kind of designed around. Um, but it's cool seeing that because, you know, as much as we advocate for like, we want to have, you know, better Asian representation in D&D &D and things like that, and like the big games, right? We also need to highlight Asian stories and Asian themes being used in indie games and other systems like that. And this is why we're going to be talking about a very special game today called For Our Family. Um, so I want to start the story 2019. Oh, Big bad con. I got to meet, well, one of our guests here, Anthony. We met at that con, and I remember that we went out for pho. And I still remember the photo, the selfie that we all took. And we were just like, I remember it's just like, yo, you're Asian, I'm Asian, a bunch of other Asian people, let's go get Asian food. And that's just how it happened, right? That's just how it happened. And I remember like talking with you and you saying like, yeah, 
I have this like hack of for the queen called for my family. And you told me about it. And I was like, no disrespect or anything to anybody else. This sounds way better than the original to me because it resonated with me so deeply. And I'm so glad that we get to have you back in like, I get to have this conversation again with you, but on Asians represent. And on top of that, we have another guest, Emma, uh, who I asked very last minute to come onto this episode because of a conversation we were having that was very topical um, to what we're going to discuss today. And today's episode is just, it's all about culture, tradition, and the diaspora, and the process of reconnecting and learning about our familiar roots um, into developing our own authentic individual cultural voice and how that relates to, you know, TTRPG production. Now, I'm not the best at introducing people. The, the, the best person is, is obviously the, the guest. So, Anthony, who are you? Why are you here? Why are you awesome? <laughs> Thanks, Daniel. Thanks, everyone. <laughs> um, I'm Anthony Nomo. Uh, my pronouns are he, they. And I'm a game designer and a design educator and, well, game design educator and internet hype person. <laughs> so, yeah, like a lot of, like, this is something that I've been dealing with, like, my whole life and something that's really drawn to me, like, making. And I'm just really stoked to to be here to talk about it with y'all. Yeah, I, I'm I'm hyped to just, your, your game's on Kickstarter right now as of, like, this recording. It and it's it's crushing it. So uh, I'm I'm excited, you know, to just learn more about it and what you've kind of changed. Now, for for those who are you know, tune in regularly to Asians represent, you know Emma, but for people who may be watching this on the Kickstarter page, for for our family, or you know just tuning in right now, Emma, who are you? What what, what do you what do you what do you do? Yeah, yes, hello. <laughs> I'm Emma. I am here too. <laughs> um, I'm actually an archaeologist, which is how I know Daniel, but uh, more and more I've been doing stuff in the TTRPG world. So started out with Asians Rep doing a 40-hour read-through of the L5R 5e core rulebook. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That was a thing. And then have continued on since uh, various episodes, including the one on mixed race that was airing that aired in October, which was a great experience. Uh, I do sensitivity reading and cultural consultancy on Japanese topics, especially related to the past or history, since I'm an archaeologist, that's what I do, as well as uh, pop culture references and the history of perceptions of Japanese society and culture mm. in the West in particular. Yeah. Uh, you, I mean, yeah. I think slowly working away on maybe producing my own TTRPG stuff at some point. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It, yeah. It needs to happen. Right. And I yeah. think it, pe people will throw money at it. Um, I, I think, I think that's, what's so great we'll about like the, the TTRPG <laughs> sort of like community and that this medium it's, very easy to put out your own work um and so that that's exciting uh, i'm really hyped to have like 
you know you two on for this episode and that you know steve agatha that we get to be back together again for the podcast now before we dive into like what for our family is and like why it actually changed from you know for my family i want to start off with that um, incredible poem that you put on the kickstarter page <laughs> um this poem i was reading it today and i was like damn you're gonna make me cry um and it says half heart in the homeland half heart here at home two tongues split between our lips not one to call our own we've borne our birthplaces trails trials all adversity and scorn despite all our sacrifice our elders expect more our elders are now dying leaving us their heirs alone only we can inherit theirs our legacy our throne and i was like damn that's beautiful it's beautiful um and it all comes from a really interesting game for our family so what is for our family about folks are if folks are familiar with for the queen uh, it is a, a card-based storytelling game but for our family has something this this extra layer that makes it special so the general uh mechanics of the game is like you have a series of prompt cards that you pull and then you answer and you go around the table answer taking turns and you simultaneously build a world and your characters exploring the relationship and exploring the relationship of your characters and whatever the main relationship is with for the queen it's with the queen with uh for our family it's with our elders um to kind of backtrack with the, like a lot of where it came from i know it's uh i was raised on the east coast uh, of the united states um far away from my family like scattered throughout the rest of the country as well as back in the philippines and a primarily white suburban neighborhood and i didn't really have a space to kind of explore and understand like the expectations that kind of were put upon me right um my great Lolo very much wanted us to speak English and only English because we were American. Um, and my parents were trying to like assimilate for like via like survival. Like at the same time, like I wasn't like Asian enough for a lot of the other Asians. I was like more overweight. So I didn't play sports. Like thank God Pokemon came out when I was like seven, <laughs> but it was like even to the point of being around like in that neighborhood like a very well-meaning white person came in and was just like 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 scrunching her face when like my mom was cooking and she's like oh what is that and it just led to my mom then like over investing in like yankee candles and then slowly over the next like uh 15 years stopped cooking filipino food altogether uh, and thus for special occasions. Like it, it's something where these questions and discussions like are really hard to kind of talk about and even identify. And I found that with the framework of Descended from the Queen games, you don't have to codify a lot of the identity into it. You it's a game that is questions and it's a game that is a conversation. And even though the like very base level, it's like you draw a card and you answer the prompt. 
the meat of the game comes from all the follow-up questions and the conversation that comes around that answer. And so when I found that I grew up with all these things I struggled with, like, and still struggle with to this day, having like a space that can be facilitated for a, a braver and a safer space for vulnerability to talk about these, I don't know, like these difficult topics that a lot of people who don't uh, share this kind of identity or experience are much harder to relate to. Either you have to talk about like, you have to have like explore like explanatory commas, like, oh, it's an ex- over-explained and it just, it takes a lot of energy. So I wanted to create an accessible experience, like initially for me to kind of use this as an exploring a space for identity and belonging. But now through like three years of playtesting now, like really want to share it with everyone else because I know how helpful it can be and I know how effective and I think it's a great game. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, now, the original game that's still available on your itch page is called For yes. My Family. So why did, why did you change it to For Our Family? So good question. And one of the reasons I want to run this Kickstarter too is um, when I had it and I ran it at uh, Big Back on 2019, it was very much like a relic of who I was at the time. And that was someone who had a lot like going through a lot of pain, a lot of struggle and was expressing it. And then using that as like an empathy exercise for it. Um, That being said, it was very, uh, there was a lot of anger and resentment built into it. And especially even the title, like for my family, I was taking my experience at the time, which felt very isolating and kind of replicating that. So over the past two years, um, I found out I was diagnosed with PTSD and like through racial trauma. And that actually helped me a lot to find a path for healing and growth. And because of that, I've wanted to take this game like further. I wanted to bring joy into the game and joy into the experience and not just make it a torture exercise (laughs) of just people just getting triggered (laughs) Um, and really bringing out like, what does liberation look like for myself? What does liberation look like for all of us in terms of how we see our identity, our belonging, and everything just kind of mixed together, making sure that it can be just a very tangible, very full experience and adjusting the prompt cards, adjusting like the final questions and the inclusion of art, the inclusion of roles. Um, I can go into that later, but just really rounding out the experience of being able to explore it in a more engaging way and thus making it a better game. So it's not just like punching in the face and always just saying like, oh, why would we ever want to be with our families? Because it sucks. It's because it's not a, in real life, we're rarely ever going to be asked to like choose a side, but it's more of like, when we take our traditions, am I going to take the gender roles? Fuck no. Am I going to like take the food? Hell yeah. (laughs) So, but those are the choices. Those are the choices that we kind of make. And those are small, like small micro decisions that we have to then choose for ourselves, making our own like culture because we are between these two worlds. And we, that, that doesn't mean we're 
like straddle between them. We're just a new world. And what does that look like for each of us? So Anthony, when you say that uh, about like, it's very rare where we'll be asked to kind of like choose between two worlds. It's because, and you're talking about the structure of uh, Descender from the Queen game, right? Like where at the yes. end, uh, uh, it's where you, in the original for the Queen, you're asked a question, spoiler alert, I guess, of like, do you save the Queen or do you not? And so I, th- so I guess a lot of Descendant for the Queen games are also like that, where in the end, uh, when you draw that card, that's when the the game ends and then you have to each character would answer this question so are you saying that then you've changed it um okay no that's a good question so what i've done is i haven't changed it something that uh i love about uh for the queen and the descendant from the queen framework like first i've been obsessed with it since i played with it in 2018 i even wrote a guide for it that's on my itch page because like i'm it's such a simple game but it's so difficult to write for. It is. It's, it is. It's so it's hard. Brilliant. It is brilliant. Um, and one of the ways I've gotten to into the design process of it is the prop question should always be open. They shouldn't be binary. They shouldn't be yes or no. But the final question is binary because that's one of the things that I wanted to focus on because it's still a time box game between like one to three hours of play and if you play again or when you play again (laughs) (laughs) um you get to the the people change the context change the fiction changes and your answer can change um and that's why i find the beauty of that binary question and by changing those contexts by changing the story and having those different groups um your answer might change to be honest, like when I first played for the Queen and for the like months I played after it, since uh, the way I my relationship with the idea of love, especially like filial piety, was very like much a abusive power dynamic. So for me, even in the fiction, I was like, why would I never defend the Queen? That makes no sense. The prompt is we love her. That's why we're here. If we didn't love her, why would we not defend her? And it took like six months. Like, and it, it sounds like very simple, it sounds very silly, but like, even in my head, like the relationship dynamics of understanding like, oh, no, this person, like you can still, first off, you can still love a person and they can still be terrible. And then you can draw boundaries. Like that's something I learned, which was huge. Um, but it's still, uh, even in those instances, at least in this game, uh, it's coming to a single decision and the single decision is still just one that's kind of frozen in time in that context. So I, I like the idea of still having it be binary, but being able to explore it a lot more. That's really cool. I'm excited to play it because we're going to play it at the end of this month for Bubble Tea Book Club. So I'm, I'm so I'm, excited. I'm very excited. Very excited to play it because just like what what you when you were talking about like you know your family. That that was like I was like oh yeah that's very similar to like my own experience right like my dad actually my dad was I was at my parents' place yesterday and my dad was uh, telling me about his like early Canadian experiences when he had come over and there was this like language miscommunication and my dad was like yeah you know when I was when I was in grade five and he showed us this picture of him in grade five I was like. Dad, you have like, like you you look like you're like 15 years old there, 
and like that person standing next to you in this like class photo, you know, when you stand on the benches or you sit on the benches in the class photo, like that person is like, that person looks like much older. Like, what is this? And my dad was like, my dad had to explain like, yeah, when I first came to Canada, they put me in this like educational program with all these other immigrants. Um, and they basically assigned us to like the same grade le- entry grade level. And when we were done that, they basically put us off into all of the other, like our age appropriate grade levels uh, is what he said. And so my dad, we, we were basically, wait, so you were like in grade five and then you went straight into high school? And he was like, in a way, yes. Um, what's really interesting is that like, you know, growing up, my dad has never really shed his Chinese culture. Um, he has always been proud of eating Chinese food. He has always been proud of his like, um, you know, speaking Chinese publicly. He has never in, in a way tried to hide that or diminish his own culture. In fact, my dad has as a person is something I really admire about him. Instead of diminishing his, his, his Chinese culture that he brought from his family and from, you know, the, the, the motherland, um, he has only added to it with his own experiences here in Canada. Um, but my mom uh, is a little bit different. You know, my mom was born in Canada and grew up in restaurants uh, because her father owned restaurants and all of that. And uh, she saw the racism that they had to deal with um, trying to open up a restaurant in like a white neighborhood um, and things like that. So my mom very much did not learn, didn't want to learn how to read or write Chinese. Um, I don't think my mom knows how to write her own Chinese name. Um, she can speak it, um, but she never like wanted to learn how to make Chinese food or, or really know about it. So when growing up in a very, very white community here in Toronto, um, I grew up for any Canadians or Torontonians, I grew up in the High Park area of Toronto. It's, it's a Ukrainian, like a historically Ukrainian area. And I was never really exposed to a lot of Chinese culture because my dad worked a lot and my mom, who was at home with us, um, like in the evenings and stuff like that, never really thought to introduce us to that because she considered our Chinese culture to be a disadvantage. Um, and so growing up, I didn't want to be Chinese. And my mom tells a story about me being like when I was young and in elementary school, I came home crying. And when she asked why I said, I, somebody called me a bad name. The teacher called me a bad name. And she said, what did the teacher call you? She said, the teacher called me Chinese. And I didn't understand what that was. Right. And I resisted my culture for so long. I resisted learning about, you know, our traditions. I resisted learning the language, eating the food for so long. I worked really hard to like hide like my culture. Like I worked really hard to like blend in and uh, like be palatable to my peers outside of my family. Um, and it wasn't really until my 20s that I was like, I feel this deep, sense of regret, deep sense of regret. And since then have been working really hard to reconnect in my own way, 
with my culture. And that feeling of regret very much influenced my academic career too. Um, because I was like, Emma, you know, my master's is in Japanese archaeology. Um, but I saw working in China as an opportunity to kind of connect um, more, and I had a chance to do it. So that's why I ended up studying Chinese archaeology, because of that guilt. Um, because I saw it as like, a, oh, I can get paid to actually try to catch up while trying to also advance my career. And so the, these, these themes, these themes of like guilt, these themes of belonging, this idea of being stuck between two worlds or in your own and trying to get to the point where you feel, like you said, Anthony, where you feel like, yeah, you are in your own new world, not stuck between two, is something that I've constantly been working on. And so that's why I think it's really important to have these conversations on Asians Represent. Because we see this in our Discord community too. We see folks, uh, and there were conversations about this too during the mixed race representation episode, right? About like, I don't feel Asian enough to engage with Asians represent stuff. Or I don't feel Asian enough to post in the Discord. Or applying for funding. Applying for funding. There's Opportunities, yeah. Exactly. Like what Isa was talking about too um, in the UK. Um, and so this feeling of like not belonging is something that, you know, was talked about in great detail in the mixed race representation episode, but it's something that's felt by, you know, children of the diaspora as well, right? And there are many levels to this and none of them are really comparable. In fact, they are all equal and we should be trying to help each other out. Um, so I'm really grateful that we can have this conversation and center it around a game for our family, right? And ground the conversation and that this game actually exists to facilitate this vulnerability, like you said, right? To create a safe space for you to, you know, explore what it means to have your own authentic self. Um, so I'm super hyped about it. Like when I see like folks like you, Steve, when you, post your really fucking hilarious Duolingo things on Twitter. I love that, right? Because I think it's so cool that you are out there showing how you are trying to, in your own way, learn about your, your, like, your culture and, and learn Vietnamese. And like, Emma, you and I were literally talking yesterday and we were like, hey, do, do you want to play Smite? And you're like, oh yeah, I'm just like struggling with some like, like learning how to put on traditional clothing. Like, yeah. do you want to talk about that? Because I, I, I thought that was just so, so interesting. The question about Smite came later. Okay, I've gave the order mixed up then. So it's like, do you want to be part of this episode? I'm like, funny you should ask. I'm over here sweating right now, trying to tie an Obi the right way for the first time. That's right. <laughs> because, that's how it um, I've never worn full formal kimono, uh, because you know, I don't. I, I grew up in rural Canada. Not a lot of Asian people, let alone anything else. And so there's never really an occasion where I felt like I could or should wear something so formal and so cultural uh, until this month is my actual PhD graduation. Like, this is my formal graduation, which we don't get to have a ceremony. It's all online. Like, 
I just get to watch my name scroll across a screen from a pre-recorded ceremony. Uh, but I saw this as a chance to, you know, not pay the $80 to rent a graduation gown and instead put similar money into buying myself a kimono and hakama, which are, it's a type of formal skirt or pants, uh, usually only for very formal occasions. That is also uh, closely connected to education in Japan. So usually women tend to only wear hakama with their kimono when they graduate. So it's like, you know what? I'm gonna do this. It arrived. Super exciting. What, what, what am I doing? <laughs> how do I put this on? I know some of the basics of the other, like how a kimono sits around your neck and how you layer things, but I've never worn uh, the longer sleeve version, which is more formal, and I've never properly tied an obi. I've only done uh, yukata with the smaller uh, waistband. So it's like, yeah. <laughs> First of all, it's like, Daniel, I'm busy right now. Second <laughs> of all, <laughs> yeah. I definitely have some, uh, some experiences here and uh, definitely slightly different because well, I'm, I'm mixed Japanese, so there's already some stuff going on there. I grew up very rural, so far away from the possibility of, you know, non-white stuff, more or less. Uh, so it's just, it's, yeah, it's been a journey. <laughs> I'm curious. And uh, it just like keeps you going you learning to tie the obi like did you get help from anyone that you knew or was this kind of like you just had to search it up online to no my family like if we do events i don't think there i've ever seen any of my japanese family in like full kimono and obi uh i don't know if i've seen any japanese canadians actually uh, based on like events and things I've gone to, which is interesting because like my mom did a really good job for being like English Canadian <laughs> with uh, making some things available. She tried to learn a lot of everyday Japanese Canadian foods and not just because she liked them, but because she, I don't know what it, it was part of our life as a, as a whole family. And my dad was fairly disconnected from all of it. My grandparents and my older Japanese relatives are very much Japanese Canadian. Uh, even though my grandmother and a bunch of them actually came from Japan, they don't say I'm Japanese. They're like, I'm, I'm Canadian. And Japanese Canadian community and culture is quite different from Japan, primarily because of the internment and the treatment around World War II. That's a defining aspect of the Japanese-Canadian experience that just doesn't exist in Japan. So we see this divergence, uh, at least for my family, and that's this, it kind of guides how we think about things. But yeah, I don't know. I, I think a lot of people have struggled with this idea of being really interested in aspects of their 
heritage and culture, but then not knowing how to implement that in their lives or feeling like it's inappropriate to do these things or lay some sort of claim on it. But I think because of the way my my parents raised me, the fact that I did see the Japanese Canadian community growing up, as well as my my English side, which was a little more all over the place all the time anyways. Uh, I think I got pretty stubborn about my cultural connections when I was in grade school, when I had that realization that I was different than the other kids and that no one knew anything about Japan or Japanese stuff. And I went through phases where I was annoyed because then it became almost my responsibility to be that person. Like you, I would have people telling me that I wasn't Japanese or that I wasn't what I said I was, but yet at the same time, I was expected to perform certain aspects of being non-white or being a certain culture. Uh, But I think all of that combined with when I started studying anthropology and learning terms and concepts and reading other people's experiences, I, I just became really stubborn about the fact that, that, no, this is who I am. There are all of these things that go into who I am. Like the Japanese stuff has always been there. The English stuff has always been there. I'm from rural Ontario. That's a culture in its own. And now here I am in a big city, part of an academic system. And that's a culture in its own. Like, I'm a person who who goes to Japan, which for some settings, like that's a thing in itself. And it's all just become totally interconnected. And yeah, uh, yeah, I don't know. I still have my moments, though, where I'm like, do I get to say these things or do these things? And yeah. Yeah. Having, having spoken with a lot of other people emma i think your experience and your experience as well these are definitely stories i hear like all the time and everyone's kind of navigation through it is unique and Mm -hmm. both beautiful and tragic at the same time because i see myself resonating with certain parts other parts i don't resonate with necessarily but i do understand like i can Mm -hmm. see i can picture myself going through a situation like emma you're describing like looking at a kimono and just like now you have to put this on. And like, I got secondhand anxiety of the idea of just like looking at a piece of clothing and being like, I have no fucking clue what to do with this. Like, I know I also, it goes on my body, but like, I have no idea what to do. Yeah. And also this isn't just for mixed people or like diaspora, but I look at this traditional clothing and think I don't have the body for it. I don't think I have a stereotypical Japanese woman's body. And so there's this moment too of like, is this even going to work? But it's like, shut up, brain. (laughs) Clothing goes on body. (laughs) We make this work. (laughs) Uh, Actually, Anthony, you mentioned, you know, growing up as like a fat kid and like Mm -hmm. what that means and whatnot. Uh, That had a big impact on kind of my growing up and and the way I navigated my identity and things like that. And I I just want to highlight that because I think a lot of people would resonate with that intersectionality of like our society's fat phobia, as well as like the racial institutions um, that all affect how a child because like we were children um understand our place both with like within our family our society and the other communities as a whole so 
Uh, all that to say, whoo, this is getting, this is getting good. This is getting deep. Yeah. Like, like we said, like, this is not going to be your, your typical Asians represent episode where we're sharing facts or dissecting something. Mm-hmm. We're just, we're sharing stories, right? I did want to share one story because Daniel brought up like the funniness of like the Duolingo and like, so I mask a lot of my, uh, discomfort and sometimes my pain with humor because that's like a very common, uh, coping mechanism the duolingo stuff that i post where i'm like oh hilarious like things that duolingo is things here um one thing i don't post about because i think it's not worth sharing and i think it's not part of my brand which is a whole other thing to unpack is that uh my parents and i cannot connect over duolingo um the lessons of duolingo and the vietnamese that they speak are night and day they can kind of understand it and apparently um speaking with other Vietnamese diaspora folk, the Vietnamese in Duolingo isn't super great because it actually switches dialects on you without telling you and avoids certain nuances and whatnot. Um, so what actually ends up happening is as a learner, um, you'll learn certain patterns of like pronouns and, and other ways to address people. But those ways of addressing people lack the nuance of who they are in relation to you. And as you actually get to like the higher levels, the system actually assumes you just understand that if this person is romantically involved with you, that you should use this uh, you pronoun to refer to them, like a term of endearment. Whereas you've been learning this entire time, this very neutral, cold way, of professional way of referring to people. But the system won't actually tell you the context there. Instead, it will just fail you. And mm. like that system that like way of thinking about things uh that was very jarring and then when i talked to my parents about it they couldn't describe really what was happening because the way they learned vietnamese of course was learning through the experiences and and culturally and societally like the way to navigate it and it's just like that's just how it is i can't really describe it it's like second nature to them and then that both created like a connection between us but also further a divide in certain ways. And that's, again, part of that tragedy and beauty of these things we're talking about, in my opinion. I, yeah. I, I feel I, like this, this definitely touches on a thing that has, that is about like language learning tools and like things like Duolingo and how the way that they're marketed and the way that they actually are and the way that people are using them, it's um, not all of these things are connected and... And I feel like language learning can, will never really happen with an app, at least not in the way that I've tried to do it. But it is, I feel like there's both, it's both really nice that it is, there's something so accessible now that I just have to download this app. And then now I can have access to this something where before I would probably have to go and like borrow books or like buy like a course, like, um, what is it? The Rosetta Stone courses? Oh my, oh my god! So, yeah, so yeah. expensive. And yeah, not that great. No, nope. just gonna say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like here's no. a picture of a man. Can you say man? I'm like, go away. <laughs> go away. I mean, I mean, even even still with like Duolingo and like Duolingo Japanese. What? Like, there yeah. is no apparent structure to how you were meant. Like, there's no grammar. It's just like. What That's one it? of those things where I know too much at this point to really get any use out of it. But I'm sure like it would have given like developed a lot of bad habits in me. 
because like my my Japanese side, they would speak like a blend of Japanese English, I think is really common for uh like Japanese North American people. It's like a little bit of Japanese dabbled in with English and whatever. Uh, but my grandma kind of refused, even when I started learning to use it with me, because she's like, it'll teach you bad habits and then they'll make fun of you in Japan. I'm like, listen, grandma, that... they're going to make fun of me for my face, not for my <laughs> language skills. <laughs> that being made fun of was just, oof. Anthony, go ahead. Sorry. I know. It reminds me just like something I learned about like Tagalog, which is like, first off, the national language of the Philippines is Filipino because there are so many dialects and not just highlighting the single one, which I think is awesome. But uh, Tagalog, through the history, you can tell like love, air, like the earth, that's all like native Tagalog, car, trash, building. <laughs> that's all Spanish. And then once the US came and colonized, it's like Coca-Cola. There's no word for soda. It's Coca-Cola. <laughs> Mm-hmm. and like that stuff so it's like it, it's wild to kind of just even navigate in the history of just like language in its own um i just avoided duolingo in general because i'm lazy uh but i like my tagalog came back to me when i got to visit a few years ago but i re- i realized that my tagalog level was like toddler tagalog <laughs> so i could oh, hang yeah. out with my my nieces <laughs> <laughs> i think for language learners, that's a fairly common experience. Like, yeah, I have a grade schooler level in Japanese. <laughs> so when I'm there, I'm like, hello, yes. <laughs> hello, yes. <laughs> I would like food now. <laughs> I do feel like there's also something about the way that whenever I interact with my relatives uh, when I'm back in Taiwan, that has to do with my language level, uh, where I feel much younger. Um, because I can, I can only communicate like a very young person could, and there's and there's also and like I don't understand a lot of the cultural nuances. Like I don't know how I'm supposed to act in a specific way, uh, in this specific situation. Like if they're like, if they're like, here is my gift to you. Am I supposed to take it? Am I supposed to say no? Am I supposed to say no two times and then accept it if they keep insisting or? Like, I don't know. And because of that, I always feel like a child uh, whenever I'm, like, with those relatives. And I feel like that also contributes to this kind of, like, strangeness of relationship between um, people who are third culture kids or, you know, children of the diaspora. Um, And uh, your, like, uh, um, your heritage. Because it's, you are never quite an adult and they also feel like they can't treat you like an adult because you don't know things right and it's like and it just goes both ways and then because you're treated like like a child then you're kind of like it it's like it's a cycle that i've discovered um more and more throughout the years as i get older and i'm not actually a child anymore because when i was a child then that's normal but now that i'm an adult it's like is this how it's supposed to be or is this because I don't get things and I will never get them? Um, yeah. Yeah. But I think this is actually really interesting hearing about everyone's stories because of course everyone's stories are so different. And I also feel like, um, I don't know if I would count as a first generation immigrant or second, because I came here with my mom, um, uh, 
or well at first it was with my parents but then my dad went back to Taiwan to keep working um because we couldn't find a job in post 9-11 America <laughs> so uh so he went back and then my mom was the one who was raising my sister and I here and but so I I started integrating into the system here when I was in grade four it, it, here as in North America and so um yeah I had like a full year where I didn't understand anything um I don't know what I was doing in school to be honest because like like there was no one else that even looked East Asian in my grade um when I was there and so obviously you can't expect anyone to speak <laughs> what I would understand either um so I don't know. I don't know what I was doing. Um, it was all a blur. And um, and I think it was grade four and five. I was in New Jersey. And then um, we moved, We then moved to uh, uh, D.C. Um, where actually for immigration that time uh, because we couldn't get a green card um, in the States. So I feel like that is obviously a, a very formative time for me because that was um oh 1.5 generation so i guess that's what i am it's a thing but also totally legit to say you're mixed gen yeah 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 people who immigrated in or before their teens that makes a lot of sense because i think immigrating before and after your teens makes such a huge difference in terms of your identity because for me my identity is mostly in being canadian um, but I think I, I have a lot of friends who immigrated after whose identity is mostly in wherever they're f- from initially. Um, but I just, I remember the whole thing about accents and learning how to fit in uh, was like essential to survival, just in general as a child. But also like I was so, um, it's it's really about like, like trying to learn English and then also speak English the exact same way that people did around me. I remember so many times um, that I would listen to the way people said a specific word and it was different from like in BC from the way that they said it in New Jersey, but it didn't like for me, I was just like, Oh, I need to, I need to change it right away. Or like the way that, you know, it's just like regional differences between like certain things that you refer to. For example, you say sneakers or you say runners uh, or some uh, beanie or toque or pencil crayons uh, versus coloring pencils. Um, Just things like that. But they were so important to me. I remember uh, because actually there was a time where I I had a classmate um, who would always like, single me out uh, and be like you're American go back to America and I feel like I'm not American they didn't want me uh, but no. oh, oh my god no. oh my god wow, oh, that's... Agatha. Agatha. <laughs> yeah but it was like it 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 was also like really it, I felt like I was always on like just on the edge of being ostracized for being an actual outsider so like Fitting in was more than, you know, like, because you're a kid and kids are, sorry, there's cat hair on my face. Um, Kids are cruel and you need to fit in. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But it was Mm -hmm. also because, like, I need to fit in to this society, to this, this thing that I think is 
the world uh, that I'm currently living in. So I feel like, um, I think this is probably very normal for like most people who immigrated at around this age um, and probably moved around a lot because uh, you always need to find new places to rent, uh, <laughs> you know, things like that. And, and there's something about the fact that um, I always still end up picking up slang um, wherever I'm at. And I know that this is normal and that you just kind of integrate language the way that um, it, it, it's just through a cultural osmosis, the more, the longer you live in a place. But I catch myself doing it very intentionally um, because it's just so like, I can't not do it because it, it, it's been ingrained in me that this is a part of like social survival um, is to when you first go to a place to be very quiet and observe and then listen to the way that people talk and then try to talk the way that they do. Um, do you know how to use chuggy? <laughs> what? What? Good question. <laughs> I don't know. I saw, I heard it on TikTok. I don't oh. know what it is and it scares me. <laughs> I have not been on TikTok yet. It is, um, it is, it is, we have, we have, we have an Asians represent TikTok account that has nothing on it. Do. But you can follow yeah. us. What is it, Agatha? AZ and his rep? I don't remember. <laughs> Asians represent you, on TikTok. There you go. That's how much is being used. That's how AZ, much is being used. I think it's AZ and his rep, right? Like we want Just like this Twitch channel, yeah. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. No, I'm, I'm calling it right now. All y'all millennials out there, you older millennials, Chugi is a is bait. Do not take that bait. Like avoid that. Why? Try to change the topic. Oh. So I don't I don't understand Steve. this stuff. Steve is educating us. Uh you just triggered my survival instinct, Anthony. So now <laughs> I need to know. <laughs> I need to know. <laughs> what does this mean? This will be uh this will come back for a bubble tea book club at the end of the month to find out what Agatha learned. Um, <laughs> so I gotta I gotta say this. So there's like talking about like school, a big thing for me associated with this shame is um any of you ever get called like oh you're a banana you ever get called mm -hmm. that yeah, I've definitely I'm been brown. Called that. oh yeah <laughs> no, i just have people straight up telling me i'm white when it's convenient yeah them. i'm just like <laughs> i used to wear it as a badge of pride me too mm -hmm. i used to really resonate with it because i thought it would make people like me more I used to be like, oh, that's that's my thing, right? Like I went to the high school that I went to was like 90% Chinese. And I was like the one who didn't speak Chinese. Oh, that sucks. And I like stood out like a sore thumb. Um, and so like I was I was the banana and it was like it was like my identity there. It was like, yes, right? Because I have uh, assimilated better than everyone else. Um, I mean, yeah, it, what do you do with that? Because it's either you embrace it and double down or like just take a beating. <laughs> yeah, or yeah. yeah, or exactly. Like I was like, kids are cruel. cruel. Kids, kids, kids are the worst, right? And you know what? They, I thought they captured it really well in the Fresh Off the Boat TV show, right? It's like, uh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh, you're eating worms. That whole thing with like noodles and stuff. It's like, oh, I got to go get white people lunch now, right? Oh, uh, see, yeah. white people eat pasta. That shit's whack as right. hell. I definitely <laughs> had like a period of time where 
Oh my gosh, this is like yeah. so. This is really sad. <laughs> um, but like my dad used to make me lunch when we were still in, living in New Jersey for those two precious years where I learned my non-accented English, uh, as I was often complimented for. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and he used to make me all these sandwiches, and then I would always throw them out, um, in the trash at school because they they had i think it was like they had like eggs in them or something and they they would just smell very strongly in a way that i was like i cannot take this risk and mm. and then at one point i was like dad maybe we can and like it was a very like oh like i my my friends like to eat this i didn't have friends <laughs> it was a lot. Uh, yeah. but and the then way. And then, like, and then we kind of, and then my dad was like, oh, okay. Uh, and then, like, changed it. And then that's when I actually started eating lunch at school. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the the cruelty that I wanted to share, I, I feel like I, I don't want to focus on cruelty, but maybe, like, the story that I think might resonate with some folks here is the idea of, like, I wanted, my parents made me sandwiches, like, white bread sandwiches, mayonnaise, ham, cheese, and a pickle on the side. Like, it, it doesn't really get much whiter than that. Yeah. Um, I never got that. I still got a lot of kids telling me my food smelled bad. Um, they'd be like, oh, like, what are you eating? And I'm like, I'm literally eating the exact same thing you are. They must smell the exact same. But, you know, they would still find a reason to, to try to build that divide. I couldn't win. Like, there was no way of winning it. And to bring it back, that banana identity the idea like i was white on the inside stuff like that totally told me like <laughs> I, can, I can try to pretend to be white on the inside but like whatever is on the inside of me is what it is and for me and i, I spoke about this in the vietnamese episode um i had to find like a new identity and i chose much to a lot of harm to me and to others i chose violence as a younger child and young adult um, I chose to identify uh, my Vietnamese side with war and violence, and that had a lot of unpacking that I had to do in my 20s and even now in my 30s. Um, so that was my specific like navigation through that. Yeah, and like yeah. speaking of navigation, I want to make sure that we, um, you know, kind of bring this back to kind of our, our central sort of focal point in its games. Yeah, sorry, it's, it's actually, no, no, no. This is actually, this is actually a good thing. Talking about food, like one of the ways yeah. I started very intentionally questioning my identity of like, what is Filipino and what's not, because often being told what is Asian or just told like, I'm not Asian enough or I'm too Asian, regardless of what I was doing, you could be doing the same thing and be told both things. Um, yeah was I was in Austin. I met this uh, Filipino dude who owned his own vegan Filipino food truck. In the media, I'm like, nah, fuck that. <laughs> but like, I had the question like, why? <laughs> right? It started later. I started really thinking about it. It's like, especially that man's hustling and it was doing great. I don't remember the name of the, the food truck, but it was something where I'm just like, and I asked a lot of uh, my friends and family about this, like, is vegan Filipino food Filipino? Everyone's universally like, no. And I'm like, why? And nobody had a good answer or like, or any answer of that matter. And it just really got me thinking about what are the things that we take with us from our traditional identity and why, and why is it? Because 
our parents or our like agatha yourself it's like assimilation is like real hard for survival and it wasn't until my like mid to late 20s where i realized like how heavily white supremacy is embedded in assimilation and how necessary it is for that survival i'm like no i want to thrive i want to do be more than this because as much as i'm surviving i'm still hurting in so many ways and all of these coping mechanisms like that shit bubbles up and you got to deal with it and especially when you're with your friends or your loved ones or your partner you can't work your shit out on other people like yes you're hurt but and hurt people hurt people but you got to break the cycle and it's like i can't cite anything but like knowing that trauma is like embedded in our dna and can be passed down <laughs> um so having to to intentionally question why do we and unpack why do we think all the things that we're thinking so a lot of the initial questions for for our family like besides me first trying to just like copy and paste for the queen and then just like um uh, just change some words around to uh, some of the questions I was actually dealing with very much like, when did you know your life wasn't your own? Like, cause there's a moment where your family, like, or my parents at the very least, and I don't, it's not uncommon that a lot of immigrants, like not even just the Asian diaspora come to a Western country for better opportunity for better education because that western country probably fucked up their country (laughs) like so we going there and immediately there's this pressure to perform to provide and you are that hope and the struggle with that is in order to survive and then succeed in that environment you can't and since they're very like very much embraced this like white supremacist ideology it's hard to hold your own culture at the same time because they're diametrically opposed. And that's like, there's this internal strife that we deal with. And it's hard to, as we talked about, it's like, it's hard to kind of discuss it. And it's hard to, even especially with like uh, non-marginalized folks, talking about our general experiences just makes everyone sad. And it's hard to just talk about it because you just like bum everyone out. (laughs) One of the, yeah one of the things i so i didn't have asian friends like even until like four years moving into san francisco so like that was wild for me and that's like hella asians like first time i went onto a muni bus i was the only asian like on that bus not playing candy crush and everyone was playing candy crush all ages i was like what's happening where am i um but i started having an asian community and like big bad con 2019 was the first time they were like because i had gone like twice before and that was the first time i was like holy shit there's so many people like me and we're all making jokes remember when we played a's for average oh my god exactly it was like the best experience of that was that i will say uh, straight up i will say that is one of the best experiences i've ever had at a gaming convention yeah honestly that was like one of the most joyous times i've had in my life at that time that's when i first like my first sparking of joy like marie kondo style sparking a joy because like i hadn't I didn't have to like put on a persona. I didn't have to explain myself. We all could go, oh shit, that like whack ass thing that happened to us as a kid, that happened to me too. Ah, we're all laughing about, like we could laugh about 
and really empathize about like all the weird like parental shit or traumatic shit that we had without like it being just tragic or just being like very introspective and there's a lot of community that can is found in that because like going back to the question of what from for my family to for our family it's very much like we are not alone in this and you are not alone in this it will feel like that absolutely and like I got into gaming in 2013 and it wasn't until 2019 that I felt like really at ease and myself and with people that I didn't have to perform for. And I didn't have to like, even other Asians, I, I don't want to explain D and D though. Like my cousins like got me into it, like uh offshoot, but it's, it's something where, I wanted this game to be a tool to deliberately explore those questions and be able to do it in a very accessible way. And one of the challenges I had with For My Family as well is that it was very much personal and it was very hard to play off type. Thus, one of the things I wanted to get through was everyone wanted to play it and not play it again or share it with their like white partners or white friends. And the difference between for our family and for the queen and a lot of the other descended from the queen games is descended from or from for the queen is a game of exploring an abusive relationship especially with that power dynamic the nice thing is we're not most of us aren't serving a queen directly so we can have that uh detachment and having that detachment gives us that space for a different perspective with for my family and for our family we have lived these the first time I play tested this with one of my best friends, uh, my my editor in uh, for Far Family, Christine De La Rosa, and my partner, uh, I triggered myself. I fucking wrote the questions. <laughs> yeah. um, it's something where one of my goals was to still keep the heart of that intentionality, that heart of the game of exploring the identity, but having those options for detachment in a more fictional space, in a more fantastical space. So one of the design solutions I went with was uh, hiring uh, some international illustrators to paint these incredible scenes, like a little bit different. And my prompt to them was like, here is this like wild mood board. Take a look and draw what you believe like culture is with some sort of fantastical element. Like what would you what would a scene be? And you could ask like a couple of questions, but I really wanted to keep it vague because just like my prompts to the art I re and my creative briefs, I really want the prompts and answers to these questions to be up to interpretation. Because even how, if I answer the same questions that are in both games, like the way I would answer them in 2019 are completely different to uh, how I would answer them now. And much less like just changing the groups, but having that space to be able to at least have an anchor with the art to kind of have a fictional anchor. Cause first off uh, role-playing, especially for new people and new gamers is so hard because there's like first play is so necessary in our lives. And as an adult, and we're told to stop playing, stop pretending, stop imagining um, it, it, there's kind of a block there, but uh, so all like people do just kind of play from what they know 
so having that art there as an anchor to kind of reference and just answering questions is super accessible. The other thing I wanted to introduce came from one of my latest play tests where I, I let my editor uh, a prototype of the game to play uh, when she traveled with like her group of friends or friends of friends and just kind of confirming how difficult it was for them to uh, play off of type of what they know. But the thing is like the, even from there, they said that the best feedback was like, they've never had a space to talk about that before, which is wild. And they were all Asian or like, and all emotional agendas and they don't like talk about that stuff. Um, and like, I guess another part of like, uh, Asian culture across like all all of our cultures is like not talking about a lot of things. Yep, is just kind of living with it. Um, so one of the things I want to do with the game is come up with these roll cards. Uh, I call them how they see us because it's not who you are; it's how you're labeled. And each of these cards, uh, they have a they just have another prompt on them. They just have another leading question that frames like what kind of person the elders and the family see you as so like i wanted to have very grounded ones like the exalted you're the favorite you're the eldest you're the baby uh you're the fuck up you're someone who has done well and then like fallen off and you're kind of like that warning but then i want to have more fantastical things that can still be kind of uh brought like still be grounded which is like the chosen one which is very much like you can take that very much as like any sort of uh, like mythic, like legendary chosen person, or it's someone who's like, oh no, you're the one who's supposed to do this. You have a destiny to become, like fulfill uh, this purpose and this career path, as well as the curse, which easily a lot of people can feel cursed. But I wanted the curse to be something very deliberate of they seem like they're seen as like a result of the elders uh, decisions and they have to bear the kind of the consequence, the perceived consequence of the elders decisions. So giving those options of role cards can, well, without having like a full character creation thing, at least lets people, gives people the option to deliberately lean in or play off type. And that can help provide more context and provide that detachment in order to explore these uh, really difficult questions. To be honest, like none of <laughs> one of the things I pride like uh, my designer for our family is like every question is like a haymaker. But I do think uh, it sparks a lot of just thought, and I don't think it's meant to just be a torture machine. <laughs> It's meant to just um, spark discussion and introspection in that matter. Yeah, I love that you, that whole idea of like having alibis, basically, right? Like um, having a more fantastical. It actually kind of reminds me of Bluebeard's Bride, which is really yes. about mm-hmm. exploring such um deeply personal and painful uh topics but there is it's so fantastical in nature as well so then like you are able to have like form that kind of uh, emotional and psychological distance that is necessary um because you're not actually in therapy but i think it's super cool that 
I because I think there's so much art and some so much like writing that has come out of people exploring their identity um, it, within this specific situation. I mean, in general, Absolutely. but also like about being uh, a child of immigrants, um, about um, find like finding your identity through by wading through trauma, generational trauma, things like that, right? Um, but all of it is very like one-sided in a way where like, yes, uh, I will engage with this other person's journey by reading this novel or this, these series of novels where they explore the same thing over and over again. Or I can like, I can go and look at an exhibit. I can, you know, I can experience it. The most that you can do is, I think at this point, um, is like VR kind of things where you get to like pick up objects um there was actually one vr exhibit that i went that i went to that i thought was pretty cool where it was like you just go through um the belongings of someone who has passed away um uh during the height of like the aids pandemic that was kind of like there's there's like a story to it and then you just like interact with the objects and then you read them and it's like that is how you explore that life um, and that experience. But I think nothing can be as interactive as a game, especially yeah. a role-playing game that people play with each other. Not a, not a video game, but a game. So like, and I feel like this is the kind of thing. And I love that you have this now as like for our family, because this is now becoming instead of, like you said, like a very, isolating and pers like my own journey it's now a, something like a, a chunk of the journey that can be shared with other people and I find that super cool and I think this is a great um, direction that I'm seeing a lot of um, tabletop role-playing games and LARPs to a certain extent um, where it we're now exploring these aspects that were before only like in quote unquote high art, um, but it's now like in the gaming space. And I think I'm really excited to see more of this um, happening and uh, not gonna lie when like during in the middle of the stream, I like went and like backed. <laughs> like, I, started, I was like, I'm literally right, just gonna, I'm gonna, I'm, I've, I've, I've queued it up to back af after this. I'm going to do it afterwards. <laughs> yeah. Wait. So like, here's the thing. Even with what y'all are doing with Gotta Dungeons get that physical and Dungeons, tier. oh hell yeah, That's yeah. same. Yeah, yeah. I was Gotta like, mm -hmm. y'all know I like cards. Yeah, Yo, I need to. This shit is real. Oh, oh and shit, it's nice. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, and I also when I was looking through the Kickstarter, yeah. I saw like Mahar is one of the artists. Yeah, yeah. so Mahar. No Mahar uh, actually did the backs for the cards uh, back in 2019. Nice. Uh, oh. And like. They were my first artist, and they were a friend that I made at Big BadCon. And they well, we and, and just yeah, exactly. That's why it's just like all the Asians did it. It was so good. <laughs> but yeah. yeah, no, like Mahar is an artist. Uh, two amazing artists who live out, out of the Philippines, um, and more to come. And you know what? I'll be real. If you something, uh, if this is exciting to you and you're an illustrator, reach out to me because I'm more than happy to commission you and you know if this funds which if you support it'll fund oh it'll fund this will this will fund. yeah you'll get paid your rate <laughs> <laughs> nice so 
yeah it, it's something which is again what you're all doing here dungeon into asians it's just role-playing and in general has been such it, it is such a good platform for exploration like gender expression gender identity for empowerment especially for like like women non-binary just like oh yeah i don't ha- i can like just the fact that you can choose a barbarian and no one can tell you no <laughs> which is like was a wild thing for my like uh mask facing privilege but the idea of like it is incredibly accessible it is such a it's right now the best medium to do this in a especially in a communal group because it's still a very social exercise i mean I will say, like, I think Bluebeard's Rise is incredible, and my favorite designers are like Banana, uh, Banana Chan, Johnny, and like Alex Roberts, because mm-hmm. they do, they are able to take those and be able to put it in a more fictional space. I'm not there yet as a designer, and I'm certainly not there yet as a person, so this is the closest I'm able to get for now. Um, but it's something that those experiences to be able to explore in role playing is amazing because and one of the reasons i want to have this be very uh a gmless game a very like, story-driven game is because when i was first trying to design like a uh, an rpg about exploring identity certain codifying certain rules or codifying a setting felt really like i was drawing a line in the sand when i didn't know where the lines were and for me just in general and why i love uh why i love descended from the queen games and other story games or all these new indie games that are coming out that are dope as hell there's so much cognitive load that lands on the gm or lands on the players or both and i think as adults with schedules and friends with kids like it's a it's i think it's either you sink a lot of time and one person just becomes the person. Um, I found that in the design of games and like releasing a PDF, like one person reads it and then tells everyone else, like I've been uh, very lucky and very blessed in being able to like onboard like 40, 50 people in the past, like eight years, not all of them stay with it, but they all have like fun and they actually get to have this new experience and then they can understand and kind of open up to, other like uh media like this stuff but yeah it's just very much i wanted to have something that is very emotional and takes you a very vulnerable space but isn't something that requires a lot of uh intellectual preparation yeah so i one of the things that i kind of wanted to to do is we, we are running out of time but we had two uh we had a couple of questions from our patrons that I wanted Ooh. to make sure that we addressed. Um first one, actually I want to end with with the first one actually. The, the, this question is um from Kat in our Discord who said um I'm going to cut out some of this because um okay. Um do you find that feelings of legacy and the weight of cultural slash familial expectations are a frequent component of the diasporic experience? How do you explain the differences um, to someone who is not part of a diasporic community and equates the experience with something like feeling homesick? That's a deep question. That's a good question. It's a, it's um, a good. It's a really good question. 
Um, and this is yeah. for everyone. This is for everyone, not just Anthony. No, no, uh, this is for cool. everyone here. Sorry, I didn't mean to just speak for. <laughs> no, no, no. That's okay. No, um, go. I, I'll I'll say like just like talking about how like, this is a very this is a very common experience for immigrants and children of immigrants in general. Like this game very much more mirrors uh, the Asian immigrant experience, but. My flex story that I use is at Big Back on 2019. I had this elderly white couple come in um, named Pete and Dee, and they were super sweet and they could really relate to their Latvian like immigrant friend. I I just know Latvia is a country and it's out like in Eastern Europe, <laughs> but like knowing that like it messed them up for a while. Like they talked about it to other people at Big Back Con. I later found out that was Pete Atkinson and his wife, D, <laughs> from a picture that Mahar yeah. was in. And I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> First, <laughs> like, he just came up, shook my hand, and said his name was Pete. I hate that shit. <laughs> yeah. No, it was really nice. Uh, they're super, super nice. But it was just something where I'm like, oh, um, in terms of being able to explain it, I find, first off, you're, it is not your responsibility to educate anyone and in that space because the amount of emotional energy that it will take you to do that just be kind to yourself know that first and because regardless of your explanation they still might not understand uh in order to understand i will i mean this is will be shilling my own stuff but this game this game opens up that conversation for especially like to be honest, like westernized, like white people, to understand the identity and the struggle and the questions that we go through, without just going, "Oh, we're feeling homesick." I live here. I don't feel homesick. Yeah, yeah. I'm also like throwing because like tying into the game is like you know the answer to this question is very much an individual answer, right? Like, yeah. what does it feel like to be a part of the diaspora, right? Uh, for me, it's like it's a multitude of things. Like on one end. I constantly feel like I am a fraud. That's on one end, right? And I think that's in part due to like the fact that like like I have some internet notoriety and that people look to Asians represent and like the stuff that we do. And Daniel, so for ruiner of D&D. D- Daniel <laughs> ruins things. Once a year, Daniel gets white people mad about tabletop games. But really, it's like for me the, the feeling of being part of the diaspora is a feeling both a sense of as an adult now who is now kind of reconnecting, feeling the sense of responsibility to learn in my own way about my culture, right? And B, the feeling of also being a fraud and how that feeling of being a fraud is intrinsically connected to this feeling of responsibility that I have given myself, and the feeling that I'm constantly not Asian enough, or I'm not learning enough. And you can see how they're tied into one another. Um, so it's a really complex thing. And it's very much going to be, you know, an individual feeling of like, yeah, how would you describe your diasporic experience? And for me, it's mm-hmm. one of reckoning with guilt, this idea of feeling like a fraud. And working and my, you know, using that as sort of a, uh, a springboard 
for my own journey of, of reconnection through my own, you know, in my own way, right? For me, it's not about creating fantastical experiences that evoke these feelings. For me, it's about taking what I've learned and overtly putting it in front of somebody for an experience in a game. So that's why when I wrote the book of inner alchemy, it is overtly Chinese. Um, because I am sick of hiding that part of me. So I am putting it out there explicitly for people. Uh, you know, all of my design work, I am very upfront with the fact that it is inspired by my culture and what I've learned about my culture. So people reconnect with their culture and express that reconnection and that journey very, very differently. Um, so that, that, that's going to be my answer to Kat's question. Let me say it's one also... thing. Oh, sorry. I'll, I'll say one thing. One thing that's universally part of a diaspora culture is actually just talking about it. Yes. About <laughs> yeah. our experiences. That is actually now developed in part of our culture, which is wild and some like meta shit to think about. Sorry, Emma, what were you going to say? Absolutely. No, I was going to say, um, uh, Daniel, you keep saying reconnecting, which is totally valid, but I think we should also emphasize that saying connecting in the first place is also equally valid. And this kind of ties into that concept of does the diasporic experience just feel like constantly being homesick? And Anthony, you said it really well. It's like, no, I'm from here. <laughs> and uh, so the last course I taught, I know I've talked about this on other streams, was actually in the history department at the University of Toronto in what was called the Diaspora and Transnational Studies. So there are entire programs around this now. And one of the big themes that I really liked talking about with East Asian pop culture, that researchers, the media, and the general public ha all kind of have this perception that people of color can just quote unquote go home and that home is always someplace else and you get that a lot with Asian but I'm going to say people of color in general there's this idea that uh, if you're diaspora that means there's another place that you can go back to that you'd be better understood feel more comfortable if you don't like how you're treated here just go there and I think, yeah, that idea that uh, an element of being transnational or diasporic means a sense of homesickness like is really connected to that larger thought process of that, well, we're just longing for something else. It's like everyone's longing for something else, but that doesn't mean our sense of home is disconnected from where we already are, you know? Yeah. And like for my experience, uh, I've noticed a generational difference. So for the Japanese Canadians, uh, my grandmother in particular, she doesn't deny that she's Japanese. She would like, I get to be like a 1.5 that she came when she was quite young, but she was from Japan. Uh, my grandfather was born here, but was uh, actually, like, had less English and was in some ways more Japanese. And 
they both were interred and persecuted for being Japanese. And so their identity became that they were Canadian and they became very adamant about that. We are Canadian first and foremost. And part of that was like the, let's not talk about what happened, whatever we're Canadians. This is our home. Whereas for me, a little bit more distance, I'm really connecting to, well, I'm actually, I'm, I'm mixed Japanese and Japan, being Japanese is part of my Canadianness. And I started emphasizing different things. Uh, and my dad's somewhere in between where <laughs> he, he is like, looks and is fully Japanese Canadian, but kind of avoided a lot of the stuff so that he could fit in better or never really thought about it. And my grandparents didn't pressure him. He told me that he opted to join a bowling club instead of doing Japanese language lessons, partly because if you go bowling, you get ice cream. <laughs> and if you go to school, you just get more school. <laughs> yeah. So it's like there was no incentive bullshit. to learn. Yeah, there was no incentive. And instead, he could have fun and just be a normal kid instead of being that Japanese kid. Um, so for every part and section of my family on the Japanese side, it's a little bit different. Uh, yeah. So I think that where are we now? And like one last point, me and my sister, were both mixed Japanese equal, equal amounts, but I don't think it's just because I look more Asian than she does. But in general, I've always gotten more of the comments and the public stuff and, people asking me questions and I get a lot more of I'm gonna say like the racism as well as the complicated aspects of being visibly mixed than she does and we recently talked in our 30s about our our perspectives and views of our family and being mixed are incredibly different despite being only two years apart growing up very close and being really loving and close and we talk a lot like we're close siblings it's yeah it's it's really interesting in that yeah you would think your sibling would be the one you're going through something like this with very closely and yet it's very different yeah my my brother and i very very different um yeah he yeah very different um steve agatha did you want to say anything about this question I think homesickness is a very interesting part of diaspora. I definitely experience homesickness. Um, like I want to go back to my parents' place and like eat their food and like drink their beer and things like that. Like that's part of my experience. I totally get that. But I think diaspora specifically for me and my little sister, like we go home, we talk to our parents, we like, have like really really great food and then we play this kind of like weird kind of game where we connect but also realize how far apart we really are and 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 the way i kind of like visualize it because i'm a very visual person in my brain is that um you know we're always kind of like reaching out to like grasp on to to areas that we can like get a grip on and it always feels like every time we grab onto something because we only have two hands, we've had to let go of something else or realize that it's actually much further than we thought it was. And I think that experience of 
constantly trying to navigate word of the day, constantly trying to like figure out, you know, what pieces we want to try to grab onto for now that make us feel belonging to our family or culture or whatever, you know, spectrum we want to, to talk about for that time. That struggle and that nuance and that very complex thing that has no answer. I feel like that is a much broader and specific, both broader and specific experience when talking about homesickness. So I don't have a really good answer. I think diaspora for me is one of those things where if you're experiencing it, this is my experience. When you hear it and describe to you, it can just resonate with you. And then you like, you know it. And that's tough in a platform like this, where I'm trying to show people my experience and, sh and share my experience and try to like educate people when really for me internally, is just kind of like, I knew when I knew, and I know that diaspora and homesickness are different and I'm going to do a fairly poor job in explaining the specific differences of it. But I can tell you that I'm being as honest as I possibly can. Yeah. It, it's a, it's a conversation. Right. Yeah. Uh, Agatha, I what about you? The way that I would really pinpoint this, the nuance of this experience or this discussion is um, uh, the time when I cried watching Black Panther, which is um, when, um, when Killmonger uh, took the flower drug thing. I don't know what it is called. Um, yeah. And then, you know how you like, you take it and then you hallucinate uh, seeing your father in your homeland. And um, for Killmonger, it was the apartment. Um, From the beginning remember. of the movie. Yep. Yeah, the Oakland apartment, yeah. Thank you, Oakland. I was like, where, where is yeah. the apartment? Okay, in Oakland. And that's where. And then you still see that kind of like, ooh, technicolor sky outside of the window of that apartment um that shows that this is this is the homeland that he dreams of i feel like that is the moment that we are talking about which is you're always searching for something but at the same time home is already there in your heart can i add on to that because in disney's what if there is a killmonger story and in that story, when he takes the drug to go back to the homeland, because of circumstance, he doesn't go back to Oakland. He goes back to like that tree that uh, the Chala went to. But his his experience with that is much more violent and aggressive, and that has like many many layers to it. I don't know specifically if the writers had in mind that it would be that layered in it, but I think that a lot of people would look at that myself included and see that yeah it's complex because both are homelands like both can be homeland at the same time you know there's another really interesting diasporic story that disney's told in recent recently obviously for like for me like black panther is black panther is the pinnacle of mcu storytelling right now it's the best one right there's there's something for everybody there and but the story hits on so many different social issues in a very accessible way. Um, but I think a really interesting diasporic story that a lot of people aren't talking about is actually that of the Mandalorian. Mm. 
that one is an incredible story um, because it is literally about a, a people whose planet was colonized um, and they were displaced. And you have one person, Din Djarin, who he himself was displaced and adopted by this culture, the Mandalorian culture. And he has this understanding of what it means to be a Mandalorian. And throughout the series, the first two seasons, he begins to kind of interact with other people who have had different experiences with their shared warrior, in this case, warrior culture. And he has this idea of like, oh, this is Mandalorian creed, and this is the way, and this is what we do. And then he meets Mandalorians who are like, no, that's not, that, that's not what we do. And it's a very interesting story if you look at the Mandalorian from this perspective. Um, so I encourage going back. That said, that said, we do have one other story, uh, one other story, one other question uh, from one of our patrons, Ravi. And what I actually, um, I actually saved this one for last because I think it's kind of like an, like a, another one to kind of ease us into it. Because I do want to check in. How are we all doing? How are we all feeling? We, this is a tough topic, right? And it's like emotionally, it's it's a lot. Okay, cool. Doing? I'm doing great. I'm doing great because I have been wanting to talk about this my entire life, and we've. It took <laughs> making our own show to do it, right? <laughs> right. But the question is, <laughs> Ravi wrote on Discord, my questions mostly boil down to where did you slash are you going to begin the process? Also, any recommendations for finding sources that are not family? Right. So where did you start? Like for me, I, I mean, I talked about that. It was, it was an academic sort of thing. Right. Um, I had this structured starting point and then it kind of allowed me to, you know, build a base right now for me, it's actually media. Like as Agatha knows, like I'm watching like fuck tons of like Chinese media. Right. I'm just really into it right now. Um, and so it's kind of shifted from that academic sort of lens to more of a pop culture one. Um, if it's like specific tangibles, I actually have a book. I know Emma, you have it too because you recommended it to me. Uh, it's it's literally called Chinese Diaspora. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's um it's it's a collection of um, academic um, like essays on the Chinese diaspora in North America from an archaeological perspective. Uh, it's a very interesting book, and surprisingly, despite its subject matter, is highly accessible. The book is like. Thirty dollars, um, which for an academic book is wow, is so cheap. Pennies. Pennies. It's not always. It's not always thirty dollars. Just watch. So sometimes it the fluctuate. Puts it on sale. Yeah. Yeah, it'll, it'll I think fluctuate. It's usually hundred and fifty. So you know, don't buy it right away. Yeah, don't buy it. Right away. <laughs> buy it. Right away. Know that both Emma and I got it for around thirty Canadian dollars, which is like Canadian three American dollars. Three American yeah. dollars, right? <laughs> Oh, okay. Canadian currency. Yeah, our, our, our polar, our ice coins. Um, yeah. So for me, it was like my starting point was really like, you know, academics, um, then media, but also like going to cultural centers and museums. A big one was actually going to New York uh, to the Museum of Chinese in America in, 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 on Manhattan. And it was just kind of like seeing these stories um and and learning about 
people who historically are much closer to me than the folks who I was studying academically. Um, so for me, it was like visiting museums and going to cultural centers. Um, depending on where you are, like hopefully you got one where you are. Um, but but look it up. Many of them have online resources now. They do Zoom meetings. They it, it's pretty cool. Um, so I would turn there if if because the caveat in this question is not family. Um, so what about the rest of you? Like we talked about apps and stuff for learning language. Um, but let's talk about like the, the things that aren't language. Yeah. So, uh, I, uh, immediately jump in the thing that I think really helped me kind of start the conversation internally so I could have it externally, uh, was YouTube, uh, but specifically YouTube cooking channels, um, looking up how to like make certain Vietnamese dishes, uh, Vietnamese dishes by 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 nature are very cross-cultural and whatnot and it was definitely like a very interesting valuable but discomforting experience to watch someone make a dish that i grew up with that i know and i watch them make it i'm like you're fucking this up this is fucking terrible <laughs> but then you know you pause because like that's, that's a very human knee-jerk reaction you pause and you're like wait a minute maybe it's not wrong like maybe that specific way of doing that is exactly right and maybe the way I know of doing it is also exactly right. Uh-oh, now I got to unpack some stuff. And that is my, that is one of the vectors of which I have approached this particular conversation. Also, because of that, it encourages me to order from local restaurants and get some delicious food. So I win on all fronts there. <laughs> nice. Nice. How about uh, Anthony? How about you? So, yeah. My start was also with food, just like that was the first time I found out I was different from everyone else because our food smelled differently. And then the first time I started like investigating it was when I was figuring out like the vegan Filipino food, because even access of what if you have like heart disease and you can't eat a lot of red meat, does that make you not Filipino anymore? And that's, that's tragic and that's not true. So that was kind of my start of just like figuring out like just personally uh in terms of like resources pbs has a it's a free app they have a four-part series called asian americans fantastic watch it um specifically to uh filipinos gina rosero uh, the playboy trans model she is releasing a four-part series called caretakers about the filipino nurses and you can actually listen to uh, NPR's Code Switch podcast, and they have something about uh, Filipino caretakers and nurses and how they are actually the front lines and the front line casualties of COVID. And that's not talked about a lot either. Um, if you watch uh, any sort of Anthony Bourdain stuff, especially, uh, what's it called? Um, Parts Unknown, when he goes to Manila, and he talks about overseas Filipino workers, like the biggest export of the Philippines is people. So you can actually learn a lot by just watching like travel shows. You can learn a lot by like watching these uh, education series that honestly are just getting really well produced and they're telling really, really good stories. And yeah, it, it's, it's interesting to know that understanding how people spread like especially with food like i'm trying to reconnect a lot with food but something that i learned was everyone who came like especially to the west or the americas specifically 
like they didn't know necessarily know how to cook because they all had caretakers because they actually could afford to immigrate. So they all they all traced it back to this one Filipino cookbook called Galingaling, and like it's rad as hell. Get it? And but it does have just like it does have stuff like the Great British Bake Off. It's like make a cake. Sometimes that's the line. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Instruction to, one: Make a cake. Yeah, <laughs> you're gonna you're gonna have to send me like a, a link on this cookbook. Okay. Yeah. So then I could share it with our with the absolutely absolutely everyone. and it, it's something where you're like as, as Daniel's been saying as all of us been saying it's like it's very individual about how we kind of explore it and I found since I didn't have a lot of familiar connection like proximity wise food has always been my home base of making me feel at home and feeling like uh, just not having to be anything else and I can just exist, just be. Um, it's hard to explain, especially if, like, especially if you don't have like mental illness or you're not like from like any sort of diaspora. Existing is, and you know what? Actually, no, everyone knows this because we've all gone through a global panorama is existence is really hard. <laughs> And just learning to be is a really big thing. So like exploring these topics, especially like any sort of these like resources that you have, like learning, I think uh, they just talked about how, uh, I forgot his last name, but Larry uh, worked with uh, Cesar Chavez with the Delano grape strike, like, but he wasn't as like camera worthy and newsworthy because he was a little rough around the edges. So he's been like excluded from that. <laughs> he was Filipino. Uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of history and how integrated it is with American history, especially in the past like uh, sixty years, because America like there are books that that and some of them are actually titled like uh, the hidden America, like hidden empire like of america and all that other stuff so yeah just check those docuseries out like i'm gonna eat some food do the thing <laughs> yeah heck yeah uh emma uh yeah so i think it's a little difficult for me to pinpoint a specific moment and that i started looking into things uh i will say though that i I understand family not being a resource because while my Japanese side is fully on board with being Japanese Canadian and unapologetic about it, they don't really talk about the past. And my grandfather died relatively when I was young and when he was relatively young. And my grandmother is the type of person who, for just because of the person she is, couldn't care less about what came before She's just concerned about what's happening now, which, you know, respect, but also grandma, what happened in our family history? Like, <laughs> Where are you from? What are my great grandparents' names? And she's just like, oh, you know, I'm like, no, I don't know. I don't That's know. why I'm asking. <laughs> um, but I've always been interested in history. Like I'm an archaeologist. That's not by chance. Like I've always sort of been obsessed with the past and I find it very interesting. So Early on, even in grade school, I would do, if I had a class project, I would do it on Japanese Canadian history or an element of Japanese culture. Like I went out of my way and did research even as a child, looking through, you know, basic library resources and summaries. 
And I'm still kind of doing that, but I, I think I've leveled up a little. And it was in university that, like I said, I started getting some words to think with. But I also had access now to resources of like history and cultures and translations of Japanese publications and things written by other like diaspora people that really made a big difference. Uh, but I will say when I was a kid, I felt connected because I started learning some crafts. I taught myself how to do origami. Um, I became obsessed with it. Uh, you can't see it in the frame, but I have a massive wreath that I made of flowers. Um, and then a little bit later, when I moved out on my own, I really wanted to make the, the Japanese food that I had at family events. So that became a process of me having to learn how to make that for myself, where to get the products, how to make it taste like my, my aunt makes, you know? And then... I think it really took off also when I found out that I could find people's stories and accounts of being mixed race in general. And that helped a lot with my personal understanding and connection and allowed me to piece together multiple elements of my family history, as well as my understanding of the places that my family comes from. And it's an ongoing thing. And I think a lot of people were expecting that my actually going to Japan would have made a huge difference. And like, it's been a cool experience. It's a huge part of who I am, but it didn't really help that much in terms of my actual like close family. Cause like I said, my family history and that massive part of my identity is in Canada. I'm not Japanese in that sense. I didn't expect to be seen as or accepted as Japanese when I went there. So it's definitely cool. I don't know where my grandparents or my families really came from there. I have no access to records because in Japan, if anyone is <laughs> Japanese descent and wanting to look into things, if you want your family records from Japan, you need to know a living relative and their most recent address within the last five years, because only people that close and living there can actually Whoa. go to essentially city hall and request their family records. And these will go back until like the early, early centuries. But unless you have someone there now, it's being stored somewhere, but the chances of getting access to it are really low. So that's super frustrating. <laughs> yeah. Now we're but, running out of time. Agatha and Steve, do you have anything in terms of like any tips for where folks can start? Yeah, I will. Or continue their a, process. Yeah, I'll go ahead. with a very short recommendation, which is uh, going along with what everyone has said already. Um, think about what you find personal connection with the most when it comes to your family. For some people, for a lot of people, it's food, right? Like it's Anthony has mentioned it. Steve has mentioned it. If that's if that's what it is, go with that. Like, think of things that maybe you've you've seen that are interesting um, about your culture that you're like that maybe you didn't experience yourself, but then you're like, oh, like that aspect is very interesting to me. 
uh, for example, like for me, uh, I was I've been learning about hanfu, uh, so like Chinese clothing, um, like older times Chinese clothing. It's got nothing to do with me directly, but I find that fascinating, and so learning more about that is helping me um, connect. So I think it's it's going to vary by from person to person, but I think it's a good idea to think back to your like actually look inside yourself first and then like what aspects of uh your life or your family life um do you find that connects you in a way or it's like when you think of like oh like my culture what is the thing that you think of like most of the time it's food um but sometimes it's also something else some for some people it's stories uh like stories that your grandparents tell i don't know all of my grandparents have passed away so <laughs> i'm just assuming that that's a thing um and things like that uh and i think starting from something that you feel personally connected to and then going on that journey is much better than thinking about it like oh there's so many different resources like and feeling overwhelmed and then think trying to go about it academically that can always come after but you need that personal connection first and that will also feel less alienating for you uh when you're going absolutely on yeah for sure okay yeah, steve I, I think oh sorry oh well, whatever you feel oh, go ahead, go ahead. like interest in like if you love dancing you love singing like there's probably like something that goes back and there's a reason for that so check it out I think one thing that we haven't talked about that I will highlight as a personal anecdote is uh, faith and religion. Um, I grew up very much like rejecting religion, uh, very much resonating with like um, being atheist and things like that, only to realize later in life that trying to understand it actually brought me a lot of joy. And by, by many of like people look outside looking in, maybe I'm not the best Buddhist, but I feel really good about where I am right now. And like the things I've absorbed in the way I incorporate those ideas in my life, bring me a lot of value and make me feel a little bit closer to other people in my family who are also, um, they resonate with spirituality and, and viewing life in that way. So thumbs up to that. Nice. Yeah. And you know, who also deserves a big thumbs up our <gasps> so patrons, <boring>. our patrons, <laughs> um, <laughs> Shout out to our, um, you know, amazing patrons who support Asians Represent. You know, without you, this would not be possible. Um, I believe that there is a Marla on the way. Just confirming. Squeeze. I think Marla is coming. Marla is on the way. Um, oh, actually, I wanted to show you folks something. She's always so excited. Just She's like always so exciting. Bounding, bounding you know, up. Like, yeah. That you was know what time. I got? Look at this. It's a bottle gourd. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. That's glorious. Yeah. It's like a dried out bottle gourd that my grandma grew. Um, and cool. I was like, I was like in preparation for this episode, I was like, my dad goes to my grandparents to, to help them out and take care of them. And I was like, I was like, dad, can you, I know grandma's got a lot of these kicking around. Can you grab one for me? And my grandparents are just so jazzed that I'm even into this. Um, last time I saw my grandparents, I wore this jacket from a brand called Bibi Sama. And it had like a, like a, like a Chinese looking tiger on the back. It's like a bomber. And my grandpa saw it and he was like, whoa. And that's the first time my grandparents have ever acknowledged a piece of clothing that I have worn. Um, but I really appreciate you patrons. Um, let me just make room for Marla. <laughs> Marla also really appreciates you. Um, shout out to, you know, all of our, 
you know, disciple patrons. Hey, Marley, want to say hi to everyone here? Say hi to Anthony for the first oh, time. Gosh, oh, she my hated that. It's okay, Marla. Oh. Um, Marla, everyone at Asians Represent loves you just as much as you love kibble. Um, but, uh, yeah, shout out to our amazing patrons, shout out to our, you know, our guardians. Oh, our guardians, Brooke Bright, Pixel Grotto, Jeremy and Daisy May. And of course our most honorable patrons, uh, the most honorable Ryan, the wizard hall metal weave games. Congrats to metal weave games and Sonia for the, uh, really successful baby bestiary calendar 2022. Woo-hoo. Um, and, uh, valorous games, Liana, we have our care tour stream is back tomorrow or if you're watching on youtube it will be on our youtube channel in two days um and then dungeon glitch slash matt and the most honorable times two epic impulse you folks are awesome you make this happen um we are so grateful for your support um that said anthony emma oh as Marla, ow god um okay bye marla marla say bye to everyone Okay. She's like, I hate this. Uh, I hate this. <laughs> okay. Oh, Bye, Marla. We love you. Thanks. She's just like, ah! Um, I'm going to pee. I'm going to pee on everybody. Um, <laughs> Anthony and Emma, where can people find you folks on the internet so they can learn more, they can connect with you? Where, Anthony, where can people find you on the internet? Sure. What have you so- got going on? Yeah, follow me on Twitter and my itch page at PanoyXP, P-N-O-Y-X-P. And from the probably link in the show notes and you find my Twitter, you'll just see me just shouting about uh, my four family Kickstarter. Heck please, yeah. Uh, yeah, please back it. And you know what? If you're interested in design, you can back this and you can get for my family and the descendants of the Queen framework. You can actually kind of map my design process from that too. Yeah, that's that's hype. How about you, Emma? Yeah, well, I'm on Twitter as uh, at Starchiologist. I am an archaeologist who studies starch. I never meant for that name to be said out loud. That is a problem with typing things out sometimes. <laughs> but yeah, um, I post random stuff on there at random intervals, uh, and I'll uh, also be on the Carator stream happening tomorrow or whenever you watch the video and i guess i can just add one little thing that twitter might be a bit of a garbage fire but it's also a good place to start looking for people with similar stories to you and backgrounds so filter liberally but you can find cool people there so you know a little resource heck yeah. yeah That said, thank you so much, Anthony and Emma, for joining us. I know this was like a really, really heavy conversation, but I think a necessary one. And I'm excited that there are games like For Our Family that structure that conversation and give people space to be vulnerable with each other and introspective at the same time. Super hype. It's less heavy when you're not alone. Damn. Damn. Damn, Emma. (laughs) (laughs) that said thank you so much everyone for tuning into this episode of asians represent y'all are awesome marla may not show it but she loves you and we'll see all of you later bye 